Welcome to Wiser Wealth Management Roundtable, where we believe the best financial advice should always be conflict-free. I'm your host, Casey Smith, guiding you to financial freedom. Are my co-hosts today, Brad Lyons and Matthews Burnett. Hey, guys. Hi, Casey. How's it going? So today we're going to talk about um, retirement planning and what to expect from your portfolio. I think this is an important conversation as we meet with uh, clients that come in. We see people who don't know what to expect from their portfolio and see people who have very lofty goals for their <laughs> for their investments. It really starts with uh, even prior to retirement. If you're looking at retirement down the road, whether it be 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, or one year, you have a rate of return assumption that you should get out of your portfolio. And this rate of return uh, tends to be all over the map. I don't see anything crazy, like 15 or 20%. I've never talked to anybody that would expect that. Although there is a Wall Street Journal article out there (laughs) (laughs) saying that millennials are expecting a 17% per year rate of return from their portfolio indefinitely, which is, um, we'll call that young and naive and, 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 the market will not be kind to them. <laughs> you know, I think in, in, in the investing world, there are different biases towards investing. And I think recency is a bias, isn't it, Matthews? It is. And that's obviously played well over the last year when markets, anything's really done pretty well. So uh, if, I guess with your new investor, whether you're investing in those meme stocks or you, ought, you do have a diversified portfolio, that's up 30%. Uh, you're kind of used to those returns. And you might expect them and, and kind of forget what actually the, the averages are there's a couple ways one or think about this one is is where we are right now in the market we're bouncing around all-time highs so you would think that going forward maybe your rate of return assumptions would be lower potentially but those biases that you just referred to also look back at the last 10 years and we see really good stock market growth year over year um, on, on the average i always point to uh an example that that's out there and easily googleable uh, if that's a word. I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Is, uh, Dave Ramsey talks about having a 12% rate of return. You get all your debt paid off um, and, and you put it in a large cap growth fund. That's the key there. Not the S&P 500. It's the growth funds of the S&P 500 is what he's referring to. And the average rate of return you should get is 12%. That's not realistic. And, and I know why he says that. But that's not something you would ever put into a financial plan is a 12% rate of return. Yeah, and at 12%, you're looking at averages that go back to the 1920s on an accumulated basis, year after year after year, of reinvesting dividends and reinvesting capital gains and not paying any taxes on the gains, et cetera. So I think that these numbers that are thrown out, although he could point to data that shows it, um, they're just not realistic in a in a real-life portfolio. They're just numbers. Yeah, it- you know, Dave, Dave does that. First of all, he's really good at um, helping people get out of debt. Who's his target audience? His target audience it's are- It's the masses of, of people it, that- It's you know, masses of people, but yeah. also mass people that's really bad at managing money, right? That got themselves into situations. And, and thank goodness for Dave. He's out there. He's, he's given a great message and he, he, he's helping. He's still on the lifeline saying, hey, I was just like you and I can help you get in- to a much better situation, maybe even be a multimillionaire just like me, uh, just through simple budgeting techniques. But if you think about from his standpoint, a 12% rate of return, if he said you should expect a 4% rate of return, pre, that's not very exciting. That's not going to sell his, much advertising on a radio show. <laughs> it's not even about advertising necessarily. It's, just, it's about moving people. 
and a 12% rate of return. That sounds great. Let's, I mean, even Bernie Madoff promised 10. So, <laughs> and that was a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Um, but, but that, that's why he does it. He's, he's, he's trying to, he's trying to move people forward. Um, I'm trying to motivate people. 4% is not exciting. Uh, and, and also, um, he has some assumptions. First of all, you're never going to sell the fund. You're going to, you're going to invest forever. And he, and he forgets about, or he doesn't forget, he just doesn't talk about behavioral finance, that when you have a COVID crash, when you have a financial crisis, that more than likely those growth funds are getting beat up really hard and you're going to sell. At some point you're going to sell. I can't take this anymore. I've lost half my money. And you jump ship uh, and, and then you never get that money back because you try, you should try to just do this little market timing thing and it's all based off of your feelings and there's no data behind it. So he forgets about that. Um, and he also forgets about the fact that most long-term fund managers don't beat the S&P 500 or don't beat their index. Right. So if you're going to be in it for 30 years, why the heck would you buy a actively managed growth fund? You just buy the growth index. You have a 99% chance of beating the stock pickers just over a 20 plus year period or just, or just buy the S&P 500, which yeah. is much more diversified. Yeah. I, yeah, I've always, it'd be interesting to see his portfolio and, and uh, tell him how he could do things a little better <laughs> or give advice <laughs> a little better. You know, when I was on, uh, uh, back when we first started with ETS in 2004, I had the privilege of being a lot of, uh, part of a lot of really big conferences that were talking about ETS and educating people about ETFs. And I thought it was so funny as I met different people that were on CNBC quite often talking about individual stocks they didn't own any individual stocks themselves. They all, they all owned index funds. I just thought that was interesting. Don't always, uh, you know, look at CNBC and Fox Business News as... It's not the catchy thing. It, it, it looked like it's entertainment sometimes. But well, anyway... Yeah, they're, get, they're there to sell advertising. Right. <laughs> getting back to our, uh, our topic. So if you look at the S&P 500 and adjust it for inflation, uh, returns are between 5 and 8% over the last 30 years. That's what occurred? Yeah. 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 So, you know, if, if you're looking at uh, a spreadsheet and we're going to uh, have assumptions for a rate of return going forward, something between 5 and 8% would make sense, except we have to take into account that you're probably not going to be 100% stock. Well, that's the thing. We have very few, if any, clients that we see asking for a 100% stock portfolio because when we do a risk tolerance uh, questionnaire with them, and find out about how they're how tolerant they are to fluctuations in the market. Uh, it's extremely rare to have somebody come back on that survey and say, and it be scored in such a way that their their risk tolerance is a hundred that they can withstand one hundred percent of the swings of the marketplace without having to sell. Right. I mean, everybody asks for more return and wants the higher returns. And like we said, when the market's up, everybody wants to be involved in that and the participation in the market. But it's when the market pulls back, if you can actually stomach that, because obviously the more return that comes along with a little bit more risk as well. So we have to adjust our S&P return or our stock return for how much bonds that we're going to carry. If a bond has an average return of 2% year over year, maybe one. Yeah. Well, uh, now investment grade ten, you know, yeah, the, the ten year bond true. is one point two percent. I think it looks really US good. In the, it looks really good in the past. It doesn't look so good going forward. No, it just doesn't. So going forward, even if it's a one percent, you have to kind of average that out, right? But let's come up with a safe number. What's a safe rate of return that you should assume 
for a person who's between 40 and 50 years old planning for retirement, what's the number? You know, if, if you can make your plan work through your, the current resources and contributions that you'll make to it going forward and have a portfolio with perform in such a way that it has a expected return in the 5 6 7% range year over year over year over year on average i think that that's probably a pretty good bet i think i'd take that so i'll take the middle 6% okay 6% to get half of dave ramsey's number <laughs> it's half the portfolio in equities though too so it is yeah i think most our retirees are close to it are probably 60 40 or, or 50 50 split between stocks and bonds. Well, that's a good point. If Maybe there's two numbers. There's a number of pre-retirement and there's a number of post-retirement. Sure. Because you could be during, 90% stock for decades prior to retirement. Sure, as you're accumulating in your accumulation phase. But then that trajectory changes once you retire, even start to begin closer to retirement, where you begin dialing back the amount of equity in the portfolio and increasing the amount of fixed income in the portfolio. And that's to have a greater probability of success going forward, to have a greater predictability in the portfolio. During your working years and accumulating years, the fluctuations in the market are actually to your benefit if you're contributing to a 401k because during market periods where you go down, you're buying more shares of that same company stock than you were at a higher price. So you benefit with the volatility early on. So I say maybe top in 7%. While you're working, mm-hmm. when you're done working, you probably should have something closer to five because you, you have to take into account a little more volatility, possibly. And, right. Uh, you know, because you're not working anymore. You're not buying more shares uh, per dollar during a crisis. You're still withdrawing from the portfolio during the crisis. Right. So you have to accommodate. This is how we do it. And we're using, um, obviously, great software to help us do this. But each each allocation, so once you determine your risk tolerance, each allocation has its own rate of return assumption. And the top end is going to be around 7.5% is the most we would ever use. In some cases, for conservative people, it's a 4% rate of return, adjusted for inflation, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Because yeah, it's less about the actual returns and more how, how Brad was discussing earlier, how that those returns in the portfolio fit into their overall financial plan. You know, our, our main goal is having the highest probability of success to help them reach their goals and less about having to beat certain benchmarks. So then the next part that I get concerned about is, you know, we just went through a COVID crash and recovery. Um, and we can still look at it as this is what the average return is. But, you know, if you lose 50% of your portfolio, how much does it take to get back to where you were? A hundred percent. Yes. You have to have a hundred percent gain to compensate for a 50% loss. Correct. Right. And I don't think young people can do that math because math is all about having the answer that you want these days, not the answer that's uh, actual math. So this is why we have Brad here with great wisdom to uh, do math the old school way. (laughs) (laughs) I still have pen and paper right in front of me. (laughs) So you think about that a hundred percent. That's why it took the NASDAQ so long to recover after the tech Bubble crash, right? That's right. In 2000. It took years for the uh, NASDAQ to come back. Years and years, maybe a decade or more. Uh, the NASDAQ you know, dropped precipitously. It was over 5,000 at its high somewhere in ni- late 1999. And it dropped down below 2,000, I think. It took a 
almost a decade. I would I would say I, I feel comfortable saying it took a decade for it to come back. And so, then it dropped again in 2008. So, I mean, you got to think about that. These retirees that were in that 10-year period, they went through 2000 and had that crash, and they had 2008, that crash. They weren't getting those 5% returns every year. So that's something that they needed to focus on as well. Well, well you bring up a great point, Matthew, is that, that these occurrences happen not on schedule, but they have some regularity to them. Right. Okay, 1987, October 19th, or late 99, early 2000, you had the tech crash. Then we had the airplane disaster, you know, flying into the <laughs> and September 11, 2001, which held back the markets. Then we had the great financial crisis, 2007, 2008. Then we had the most recent, you know, pandemic, coronavirus. These events do occur on a, on a regular basis. We just don't exactly when they're happening. But when you're creating a portfolio that lasts for 30 years, or more, these events are have to be considered in the composition of the portfolio. So short-term movements in the market that are great, you know, and everybody wants to jump on that bandwagon, shouldn't change an investor's reasoning as to how they construct their portfolio because with a short time frame mindset, you have to have a very long time frame mindset when you create a portfolio that's expected to pay somebody out income for the remainder of their life so that they can have the quality of life and the lifestyle that they so want. What, so what you're saying is life is not linear. Great. Neither are portfolios. That's right. That's so right. Therefore, we have to accommodate that in our financial planning or retirement planning assumptions. And the best way to do that, what we've seen so far, is what technology allows us to do is, is a, really two ways. One is Monte Carlo, which we associate Typically, not with investing, no. <laughs> <laughs> but but the concept, yeah, uh, of Monte Carlo, and and basically that's running a hundred or thousands of different portfolio variations and coming up with a probability that you won't run out of money by a certain age. So our default is ninety five, right? Some people have to go to a hundred because they have longevity in their family, but we're not focused on a average rate of return. We do have to solve for that first for Monte Carlo to then do its thing. So we solve to an average rate of return, and then we're going to run a Monte Carlo simulation to see what probability we have of not running out of money by a certain age. Right. Because obviously, like you said, you know, that's not a linear projection. They're not going to get five to 7% every year. I'm not sure what the newest statistic was, but before Corona crashed, it was there's a 20% pullback every six years. So through the lifetime of a, a retiree, they're going to see a few significant pullbacks. Uh, they obviously aren't going to be fully participating in that market, but the market will be down. So they're not going to always get those average returns. So it's worth running various scenarios, whether it be the hundreds or thousands of scenarios in order to get the highest probability to reach those goals. So typically here we focus on uh, what around 82 to 85% probability of the client not running out of money before age 95. And you say, why not a hundred? Well, it's like, it's a lot like a bell curve. So there, and the, we want to focus on that middle, the highest probability of the most likely track where on the left and right side of that bell curve are things that statistically probably would never happen. So what I like to tell our clients is if you have a 99% chance of not bring out the money, you're probably eating ramen noodles in the corner of your kitchen for no good reason. And you're leaving millions of dollars to the children, right? So that's why we dial it back. Uh, th there's an article, maybe Matthews was telling me this yesterday. Uh, some firms will run Monte Carlo's at 50%. 
yeah, just going back to the fact of, you know, there will be some different years and when there's good years, you can spend more. There's bad years. You just learn how to, uh, to budget more. It comes back to the spending. Yeah. That's, I would advise that. that. That's a 50% <laughs> coin toss there. <laughs> yeah. I can don't you imagine I, having a client come in and I don't say, know how well, you, we have a 50, 50 chance. Yeah. You make it. <laughs> there's a 50, 50 chance you make it. I, yeah. That's kind of like the joke. I have good news and bad news. <laughs> yeah. Right. What do you want to hear first? Yeah. And the doctor says, you know, you have six months to live, but the bad news is I should have told you six months ago. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's, I feel like they'd be the same exact same situation. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, so there are some negatives to Monte Carlo. Um, one of the negatives is people say it doesn't take into account all the black swan events. So for instance, maybe a COVID crash is not really built into that. And, you know, and, and there's very few people out there that are, that are saying a Monte Carlo doesn't work or you shouldn't do it. It's definitely better than what you can get on the internet for free or what they offer you at the big brokerage houses these days. But we have a way around that as well. And that we would call we call it bad timing, right? So, yeah. So we would. I mean, we plan for those. But the biggest issue with retirees is called sequence of return risk. So the you know if the market drops those first few years during retirement while you're withdrawing from the portfolio, it can significantly have problems of your retirement plan because you mentioned if the portfolio is down fifty percent, you need to get a hundred percent to get back to where you were. So we're planning for these bad two years of initial retirement and showing that you're still on track regardless if there is that sequence of return risk. That's what I love showing people the most. To sit down and show them, you can lose 20% of your assets. And if you're down 20%- In their and, portfolio. That means the market's down probably the same 60, 50, yeah, 50, 60%. Right. You can lose 20% of your assets. Market's down maybe 60. You're down 20. Uh, then the next year, you can lose almost 8%, right? Then the following year, you only make the average. And if they're retired, the average planning number is probably around 5%. There's no rebound. And- you still have an 85% chance of not running out of money before age 95. Or in that case, when we do the bad timing, it's either 100 or zero. So you have a 100% chance of not running out of money on a linear calculation uh, to age uh, 95 or whatever age you're planning for. Well, essentially, we're stress testing the portfolio, right? We're providing or we're pushing a stress on the portfolio to see under worst case scenario, can you still have the retirement that you want? And when declines occur early in our in retirement years, that's the worst case scenario because those take the longest to come back. Because declines and returns are not V-shaped always. And we saw somewhat of a V-shape here during coronavirus. But in the 1987, I mean, that just took forever to come back. That loss that we experienced of 20-some percent, that took years to, to come back. It took years to come back from um, the, the 2001 tech wreck. Right. And as you said, if you're retired, you're probably withdrawing from some of those funds as well. That's right. That's right. And that puts additional stress on the portfolio. So these these are tools that we have. You know, the Monte Carlo simulation is algorithms that are that are used not just in the financial world, but in, in industry and in science and technology that's used to for people making decisions to consider the, the scenarios that, that are possible outcomes. Okay. So it's used across several different industries and it's a tool, you know, stress testing the portfolio and programs that we use are tools that we use. And then we take our best judgment after that and work with our clients year after year, after year, after year, after year. I think the important take here is there's a lot of uh, tools online that are free that have a default number of eight, nine, 10% that just sit right in there. Uh, 401k plans, when you log into your 401k plan online, they'll like, are you ready for retirement? And it'll give you a number, 
okay, our, our software never matches that number. Some of those platforms will include, try to include social security and some of them don't. Some of them will try to include to have a line item there where you can add other outside assets from your 401k. Some of them don't know about that. They don't know about your spouse's social security. They don't know about your spouse's pension. <laughs> I mean, that basic retirement math, you could just do with a, a calculator and just do a time value money calculation. So exactly. It's nice and attractive to have, and it's good that you're actually planning using that, but it's not exactly full planning that you need to do to do retirement calculations. It helps uh, kind of sketch out a rough design for the rocket ship. But when it actually comes to launching the rocket ship, you need more specific numbers that take into account black swan events, uh, volatility in the market, your entry point in the market, where you are now. Capital market assumptions going forward is very important. Those things that you know, most professionals are going to do in their planning. But it's important to remember that, that when you hire a financial advisor, if you're hiring just to manage money, that's not good enough. Managing money is being commoditized. Robots will probably manage money in the future, right? They're already doing it now, or artificial intelligence in the future. The, the, the important part is the, the tax, estate, retirement planning, all those things in sync together. That's where you can save money is by having those strategies all lined up and working in your best, best option or at your best interest. Uh, and even including withdrawal strategies. Where do you pull from first? Exactly. The portfolio is a piece of the overall retirement plan, but it's not the only piece. And this is the piece that I think the most people in the general public want to focus on themselves. And then as a re response to that, the industry quite often focuses on that because that's where the, the income comes from. That's where from. they make money. That's right. But as you say, I mean, one of the big things is, is withdrawals. Like, where do you take your withdrawals? How do you measure withdrawals relative to your next marginal tax bracket and keep yourself lower than that? Where do you take the money from? Uh, what about qualified dividends versus non-qualified dividends? I mean, the, the strategies involved in retirement today are more and more complex because of the tax codes, because of the tax qualified accounts that have accumulated for people now in 401ks and IRAs, Roths, Roth conversions, HSAs. I mean, it's just become tremendously complicated. And the portfolio, sure, that's what drives the bus, okay? But everything else that's on that bus is just as important, right? The estate planning, where to live, what state has the best income taxes for retirees, because that changes. Once a person, you know, retires, sometimes their state, their, the amount of their pension is taxed differently versus their earned income. Sometimes Social Security can be taxed differently. Sometimes your dividend income can be taxed differently. So these are all things that are all should be considered in an overall retirement plan. And they all affect your overall picture. I mean, like you mentioned, there's different taxes with capital gains or ordinary income taxes, and that can affect your Medicare premiums or Social Security taxation. So just deciding to pick from this account and see how it goes is not the best strategy. You have to actually look at the overall picture and, and what the strategy is, not just for this year, but moving forward throughout retirement. I, I know two firms in town, our size, they're growing fairly well, but it won't continue. It won't continue because they're overcharging for asset management and they're not delivering on financial planning. 75% of what we do is planning and preparation and monitoring of that plan. 25% of what we do is actually managing people people's money. Most people when they walk in the door are looking for someone, I say most, I, our clientele's I think smarter than average, but most people that come in here, oh, I say a lot of people that come, some people, maybe it's some, I don't know. <laughs> 
we should go people. do the data on this. But people will come in and they're looking for asset managers. They're looking for people. I need you to manage this money for me. You hear what have y'all done last year? You hear that some recently. That's especially true. With the way the market's been is what what y'all do last year and what are you doing right now? Right. And I don't want to say it doesn't matter. It does matter. We have a process that's built so streamlined on the asset management side that it's going to do exactly what it's supposed to do. That's right. And that's the point. <laughs> what, what are we doing? We're following the financial plan. We're implementing and monitoring the financial plan. Right. Yes. Right. Which is more important. That's right. Than the asset management. Yes. Assuming you're doing the asset management right. And we have lots of podcasts on asset management. But it goes back to where do I pull the income from? Where do I save into? Are you saving money into a Roth? Are you putting half your money into the Roth, half your money into a traditional 401k? Because you, you actually increase your probability of success. That Monte Carlo will go up if you're putting more tax-free money for your future. You pay a little more tax now, but you get a higher Monte Carlo return or uh, probability with tax-free money in the future. Right. And then for retirees, there's a, a time where doing Roth conversions, you may pay the taxes up front, but in the long run, it can be beneficial to the overall plan as well. I think this is a great segue probably into another podcast talking about retirement income strategies, not an annuity. Because <laughs> when you say retirement, you Google retirement income strategies, every single annuity pops up uh, on the Google search. But where do you pull it from? In the end, you want to have non-qualified money. You want to have IRA money. You want to have Roth IRA money. Where where do you get your income source from? Uh, and I think having options in the future is better than just having all your money inside an IRA. Um, in those cases, I, I'm a little nervous about tax rates in the future, paying for all the stimulus, et cetera. Uh, but anyway, we can keep talking forever, but... The, the theme of this podcast today is you have to have reasonable return assumptions going forward. Do not bet your future on a 12% rate of return from your portfolio. And they're not linear either. <laughs> right. And they're not linear. That's right. Well, That's right. If, for somebody who goes onto the internet and fills out one of those little calculators and it comes back saying you'll get X number of dollars in, in retirement, keep in mind that the value of the advice that they just gave you was worth exactly what you paid for it. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Very true. All right, guys. Good conversation. All right. I'll look forward to the next one. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wiser Roundtable podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. That way you don't miss out on new episodes. Head to wiserinvestor.com and reach out if you have any questions. We would love to hear from you. Today's episode was produced and edited by Lilton Moore. Wiser Wealth Management Incorporated is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.